Our help is in the name of the Lord, creator of heaven and earth. Grace to you and peace from God, our creator, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Advent is a time of anticipation. Waiting so long for God's sign, sometimes we give up looking and find our own instead. But the prophets still have things to tell us. We are told that we, that we weary our God with our wastefulness, but God will give us a sign in any case. It is this, a young woman shall conceive and will give birth to a son, whom she will call Emmanuel. Before the child knows how to refuse the bad and choose the good, the threat of war will be over. A young woman shall conceive. A young woman is with child. A child shall be born. Emmanuel has come. God has chosen and is choosing us. Come, let us open our hearts for God's grace. Come, let us worship the Lord. Come before God to worship. We take our place before him as men and women broken by sin. and Therefore, we make our prayer of confession together, saying, God of grace, your eternal word took flesh among us when Mary placed her life at the service of your will. Forgive us for living our lives as if that service is for only the select, only the elect, only the undeserving. Forgive us for not allowing your spirit to birth in our hearts the Christ who has come for us all each and every day. Prepare our hearts for his coming again and keep us strong in hope and faithful in service that we may receive the coming of his kingdom. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy immortal one, have mercy upon us. Hear the good news. The saving is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might be dead to sin and alive to all that is good. Therefore, in Christ we stand forgiven. Thanks be to God. Hear what our Lord Jesus Christ says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets, and thankfully, so let us live. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. The peace of Christ be with you. As we come to the reading of God's word, let us pray. Lift up your hearts. God of mercy, you promised never to break your covenant with us, and all the changing words of our generation speak your eternal word that does not change. Then may we respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The word of the Lord from Isaiah 7, 10 through 16. The sign of Samuel, Emmanuel is prophesied. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to test. Then Isaiah said, Hear them, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary mortals that you weary my God also? 
Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. This is the word of the Lord. The second lesson is given to us from the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. In this passage, Joseph has a frightful dream. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Advent series of sermons is entitled Pregnant with Hope. And I would like to use the metaphor of pregnancy today in a very uh, real way. So I'm going to ask you to uh, put into your mind some of the pictures that you remember uh, from your own birthing of children or from what you have seen in a movie or on television. When there is a life, a human life waiting to be born, a mother typically is not going to say in the birthing process, um, it's too painful to push, so I'm not going to do that. The birth is going to happen. And the pain is going to happen, but the life must begin. And even if taken cesarean, a birth is painful, just after the fact, rather than during it, perhaps. But if, in fact, a woman refuses to push, the prolonged labor can, in fact, cause detachment of the placenta, which will cut the flow of oxygen to the child. The child can be born dead if not taken surgically. Now, this reality has many parallels to our Christian faith. In the text before us, Joseph is given an announcement about Mary, his betrothed, his, the person, woman he's engaged to, that is going to shock him, is going to rattle his cage, is going to upset him, She's with child, and it's not his. 
And in this culture, that's not good. To begin, we need to understand that the circumstances in which Joseph finds himself in our text today are not the most optimistic of circumstances. For Mary, it means being categorized as an adulteress, and it could mean her stoning to bit to death by the Sanhedrin. For him, it is the embarrassment of having been with her and yet not lived with her. It is the embarrassment of having made a commitment publicly, as the engagement process was, and not be able to keep his promise and fulfill it. But the message of the angel to Joseph turns all of that around. And the passage tells us that Joseph Joseph does indeed turn and take Mary to be his wife. She bears him a son, and he names the son Jesus, as he was told by the angel to do so. That kind of obedience, that kind of follow-through in what we know to be the will of God, is part of a dynamic that we call in the Christian faith hope. Hope. You see, hope is not, for us as Christians, simple optimism. It is a belief that brings about and comes to life in reality. The pregnant woman just doesn't wish she has a baby coming. It's growing inside of her. And it shows signs of its existence. Nothing in that woman's body will ever be the same again. In March of 2010, in the Time magazine, South African Archbishop Desmond Tutu, speaking about one of the books he has authored called Made for Goodness, was featured in a regular column that's called Ten Questions. One of the questions that was posed to Bishop Tutu, who you will remember was one of the key leaders in the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa, one of the questions that was addressed to him was, after all that you have seen and endured, are you really as optimistic as your book, Made for Goodness, says you are? Tutu replied, no, I'm not optimistic at all. I'm quite different. I'm hopeful. I am a prisoner of hope. In the world, you have bad people. Hitler, Idi Amin. Bad systems, apartheid, slavery, Nazism. And they look like they are going to win. All of them, all of them have come to bite the dust, historically. But just as Hitler and Idi Amin were overcome by great struggle and sacrificial life-giving, the fact is the reality of hope is not without pain or struggle. Tutu would be the first to admit this and understand it. But Christians like Thomas Wright, who writes in his book, Putting the World to Rights, these words. I had a dream the other night, a powerful and interesting dream. And the really frustrating thing is that I can't remember what it is about. 
I had a flash of it as I woke up, enough to make me think how extraordinary and meaningful it was, and then, poof, it was gone. Our passion for justice often seems like that. We dream the dream of justice. We glimpse for a moment a world at one, a world put to rights, a world where things work out, where societies function fairly and efficiently. And then we wake up and come back to reality. According to Wright, our longing for justice comes with the kit of being human. Unfortunately, although we all strive for justice in this world, we often fail to achieve it. And Wright says, you fall off your bicycle and break your leg. You go to a hospital and they fix it. You stagger around on crutches for a while, then rather gingerly you start to walk normally again. There is such a thing as putting something to rights, as in fixing it or getting it back on track. You can fix a broken leg, a broken toy, a broken television. So why can't we fix injustice? It isn't for lack of trying. And yet in spite of failures to fix injustice, we keep dreaming that one day all broken things will be set right. Wright contends at the end of the book, Christians believe this to be because all humans have heard deep within themselves the echo of a voice which calls us to live with a dream for justice. And followers of Christ believe that in Jesus, that voice became human and did what had to be done to bring it about. This living hope is not just a wish or a dream or a fantasy. It is the real involvement with real barriers and real pain. When Joseph is confronted with Mary's condition, it is not a fairy tale. It is not a legend. It is not a myth, it's fact, it's historical fact, and it bears upon his real everyday life. Saul and Pilar Cruz, a married couple who founded the Armonia Ministries outside of Mexico City, launched their ministry by planting a church on the edge of the vast garbage dump on the outskirts of the city. Starting the church had its challenges, and in particular, the people had a difficult time trusting Saul's leadership. Although Saul is a gifted strategist and thinker, he often appeared aloof to the people. By his own admission, he writes, at this point, I was unwilling to plunge into the pain and poverty of this people. But all of that changed one Sunday morning when someone burst into their worship service with a frantic need the local sewage system had started leaking and then flooding the streets of the city. As the sewage continued to gush, the street was on the verge of collapse. The crisis also threatened to sweep away dozens of the nearby houses. To make matters even worse, the city had only promised help three days in the future. Saul and the local engineer organized the onlookers and church members to stop traffic make sandbags, and after working frantically for nearly 15 hours, by 3 o'clock the next morning, they had finally stopped the flow of sewage. 
It was cold and drizzling, and Saul was shivering. Exhausted, covered with mud and sewage, Saul and his church members emerged from the garbage pit and walked back to the church. Some of the women had heated water so the volunteers could wash off the filth. As they gathered together, Saul started to cry. I'm sorry, he said. I'm sorry, but I need to pray. I need to thank God because he has just saved us. He saved you. He saved me. Can we pray? Then Saul put out his hands as they all held hands and knelt to pray. By the time they had finished praying, Saul had earned their trust, becoming their leader and their friend, their protector. Later on, Saul would comment, people need to see you're for real, that you really care for them, that you're, you're even ready to put your life on the edge for them. Christmas and the Advent season celebrates the fact that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, moved into our world, walked into our suffering. Our God is not aloof. Jesus put his life on the edge for us, descending into the mud and the sewage of our world and gave us light and hope and strength. Now, unfortunately, too many postmodern Christians don't understand the nature of our Christian hope. I think that the experience of Lee Eklov from Lake Forest, Illinois, parallels something of our reality when he writes, Someone dear to me once gave me a little cross adorned with roses, and it bears the inscription, Hope raises no dust. I looked at that phrase and I tried my best to penetrate its mystery. I didn't want to look stupid, so I didn't say anything at the time. But after pondering it for a little while, I just had to go to the bottom of what it meant. So I'd been, it had been written on a cross, so it had to mean something, I supposed. When I typed, hope raises no dust, into the Google search on my computer, I found out that the phrase was originally uttered by Paul Eluard a French poet associated with Dadaism. When I looked up Dadaism, I found this definition. The Dada movement tried to express the negation of all current aesthetic and social values and frequently used deliberately incomprehensible artistic and literary methods. I then read some of Eluard's other famous quotes, quotes like, Elephants are contagious. Earth is blue like an orange. All of this brought me back to hope raises no dust. Everyone believes hope is vital to people. But most folks' hope is about as vague as that Eluard quote that is painted on a little, red, on a little cross. But for Christians, hope is not vague. We have a hope that is historical, that is personal. We know a hope that sleeps in a manger, that walks the beaches with his disciples, that heals the sick, that stands in front of an empty tomb and calls forth the dead. 
And now we clearly today preach that same person, Jesus Christ. You too can be born anew every day into a hope that empowers, encourages, and engages you at every level and in every moment. In the reality of our contractions, our sufferings, our difficulties, our struggles, the hope and the life that Christ gives can be a real sustaining force that works in us and through us in our world. I believe as a congregation, you have experienced this. In all of the years that you spent in your discernment process, you came through these contractions of hope. You struggled with, shall we or shall we not continue? You struggled with, can we or can we not afford to go on? You struggled with, what shall we do if we decide to do so? You struggled as a congregation to define who you were and where you wanted to go and what you wanted to look like and what the three legs of your stool of ministry would be. And one of those legs was ministry to the university community. In the past week, I've had opportunity to spend some time with university students at Trinity House. We've been having reading week. The house has been open from 10 o'clock in the morning until 1 o'clock in, in the morning, every day of the week. Lots of conversations, lots of coffee and cookies, lots of study around the dining room table. But one of the things that I have been amazed at is that this past week, five teenagers from the local high school and Middlesex Community College showed up out of nowhere. Having met Nancy at the summit at the Middlesex uh, County uh, Warehouse out on Jersey Avenue the, pa the previous Saturday, they came to volunteer to work in the food pantry. I had never seen these kids before, but there they were. And they were the best little workers. I mean, Nancy made a few things, a few suggestions of things to do, and they, like that, they had the storage room organized and the shelves organized, and they were ready to take on another project. It was incredible. I'd never seen these kids before. Never knew they were even out there. Here they are in the middle of this, this food pantry, digging in and saying, what can we do next? And that we will be here next week and the week after that. And something happened inside of me. I began to realize, knowing what the college students do with us, knowing what is happening with even high school students that find out about who we are and what we're up to, that focus, that ministry that you chose has come to define who you are. It's not something future anymore. It's a very real part of who you are. That's exciting. That's, to me, more the proof of the reality of Christmas than any gift we could give to either each other or to God. About 15 years ago, a pastor friend of mine writes in a devotional book, I bought my four kids a swing set as an early Christmas present. 
It was an extra long metal set with two swings, a two-seater swinging bench, a slide, monkey bars, and a series of hanging rings. I thought it would be a great project for their mechanically challenged dad to show his sacrificial love. Besides, it was on sale, it was cheap, and it was made in Germany, so I knew it would last a while. After purchasing, hauling, dragging, and opening the 200-pound box, I was suddenly overwhelmed by the sheer number of parts and the complexity of the instructions. Based on my eye-popping assessment, I would have to assemble about 10,000 tiny screws, washers, nuts, bolts, wing nuts, plastic pieces, metal bars, metal chains. They provided an English translation of the instructions, but unfortunately they were no pictures or diagrams, just convoluted technical instructions apparently written by scientists or experts in mechanical engineering and not for lay people like me. It was too complicated for an ordinary non-engineer like me, so with help from some mechanically inclined friends, we finally managed to assemble the whole set. Although for some reason, I had a few dozen leftover parts. Little wonder then that even my 34-pound son made the entire swing set shake and wobble when he got on it. This experience, he writes, makes me think about God's gift at Christmas. God is infinitely more intricate and mysterious than anything in the universe, let alone a swing set. And yet God's glory and grace aren't reserved for an elite group of geniuses or engineers. At Christmas, God became very simple. The mysterious became visible, small, and even vulnerable. Through Jesus' birth, God revealed himself to ordinary people. As the Gospel of John says, no one has ever seen God, but Jesus has made him known. God didn't send thousands of pieces. He sent one piece, a person, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And then he also sent clear instructions. Trust and obey Jesus. If we are in fact the body of Christ in this world, we are the gift as well. We may be the extra nuts and bolts and plastic pieces, but we are, in fact, what God has given to the world to bring about the kingdom's justice. And we are about that. It is who we are now. It is what we are becoming. And with God's help, it will be the way God brings us into a future that is not even imagined by us yet. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is so easy to be taken in by our circumstances and believe that somehow or other because things are the way they are or aren't the way they aren't 
that what we have been promised, what we have dreamed, what we have developed a passion around is not true. Your coming into our world as a baby is the sure sign that you will come again and that you come every day and every moment and that with you we come into that hope that you have given us the hope of glory Christ in us living, serving, loving and waiting on the will of the Father We ask for this grace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.